Luke 2, 8 through 20. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. And when they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. I'm Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church. We are in this Advent season preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus walking through this birth narrative, um, traveling through this story together. And we're doing it this year, going through the different proclamations of angels. Today we have one that um, I think some of us may have heard recited in Charlie Brown's uh, Christmas story, yeah? Um, This beautiful story of the shepherds in the field with the angels that come in the night the shepherds watching over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord stands before them, and they're terrified. We talked about this a little bit last week, that there might have been some really good reasons why they were terrified. The angels seem to be really scary creatures. But what does the angel say to them first? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have good news of great joy for all the people. And then the angel goes on, in the city of David, there will be born a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And you'll find this child wrapped in cloth in a manger. And then suddenly there's this multitude, right? The whole sky is filled with angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace. It's so pretty, right? this peaceful moment in the dead of night with with beauty and power and music. So what does this peaceful moment, this declaration of peace, mean to us? It means light in the darkness, right? It means, means warmth and joy. It means something pretty self-contained. Oh, these shepherds, they're these characters that we know from this story, and they head to the manger where all the action is really happening. But a lot of times in our culture, we reduce that story just to this warm feeling of a proclamation on a cold, dark night. 
When in fact, this story is incredibly dense and rich and wild and has a lot of layers going on that we're going to have to unpack. What does a message of peace mean in this moment? What does peace mean declared in these words at this time to these people? How is that message of peace consistent not with that American white Jesus that we're trying so hard to rid ourselves of, but the brown-skinned Palestinian of Jewish faith who was living under occupation in Rome? What did peace mean at the announcement of his birth to those shepherds on that night? Well, so one of the things that we have to start with is what peace meant in that culture. Has anyone ever heard of the term Pax Romana? A few nods. Pax Romana, or Latin for the Roman peace, was a period in history where there wasn't any war. It was a time of peace. Yes. Who brought us that peace? A guy named Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. That's why everyone became Caesars. But Caesar Augustus, who was named Augustus because it means the one who is divine in Latin, or he was also called in Greek Sebastos, meaning the one who is worshipped. So the one who is divine and the one who is worshipped was the one who brought about Pax Romana, sometimes called Pax Augusta because it was so closely associated with him. And in fact, they would celebrate his birthday, Augustus's birthday, saying, the birthday of the God has marked the beginning of the good news through him for the world. Right? Like weird, huh? I'm going to say that again. The birthday of the God has marked the beginning of the good news through him for the world. Does that sound familiar? It would have sounded very familiar to the people in Jesus' day who had heard this. There, these are, there are inscriptions, for instance, about Augustus saying, Sotera tu sempantos cosmo, Augustus, Savior of the whole world. Yeah. And there was a sense of, of reality to that, this sense that the wars had stopped. The Pax Romana is actually a real time in history that we talk about. It was from 27 BCE to 180 CE. No wars. So how did the Romans and how did Augustus accomplish this no war time? <laughs> I'm seeing a, a, like a fist of, of domination coming from one of the back rows. Yes. Rome stopped all wars because Rome conquered everyone. Now, certainly they didn't conquer everyone in the world, but they conquered everyone in the region. And so there weren't any more wars because the wars had ceased because the wars had all been won by Rome who came in and dominated. The Pax Romana was not a piece of freedom. It was a piece of submission. The Pax Augustus was a piece of domination. And Augustus had saved the whole world by conquering it. Good news. There were these decrees that would go out. They were called gospels. They said, good tidings. The peace has come. 
Divine providence has brought wars to an end through our Savior, Caesar Augustus. Peace. And it's interesting because we know there were a lot of rebellions during this time. We know that there were many rebellions that had to be quashed with incredible violence, swift violence, public violence. So Pax Romana was not a time free of violence. It was a time free of war. And so it was understood to be a time free of conflict. The peace of Rome is empire, domination, occupation, submission, no conflict, because conflict is quashed, smashed immediately by the powers of empire. So there was a kind of peace. There was no war. But it came at an enormous cost. It was the peace of domination. The Pax Romana was rule over. And that was the world that Jesus was born into. The Jewish people occupied by the Roman government as everything in the region was under this false peace, this peace of domination and empire. So, knowing that, this story starts to take on a little bit of a different tone, yeah? So now we have to return to that field, the field of shepherds watching their flock by night. Shepherding was a really lowly occupation in Israel. There was an interesting mythology connected to it. David, who was a super, super important king, arguably the most important king in Israel's history, David had started as a shepherd. But the reason that story that is important in his story and mythology is because shepherds were so lowly. So he was the shepherd king, which was kind of a, an oxymoron, a, a clash of ideas, because shepherds were lowly. They were also young. Usually it was grunt work that you would pass off to somebody who didn't have the qualifications or the experience or the cultural weight to get a better job. And it was third shift. They're watching by night, right? So you've got these probably teenagers, these boys, on their third shift job, following around sheep, making sure that nothing comes to attack them in the night. And it was a lowly job, but it was a protective job. It was a job that's associated with lots of metaphors of the right way to care in God's eyes for God's people. Not to rule over, but to protect, to watch over. These young people who didn't have much by way of material or authority, were watching over the vulnerable flock on their third shift job. And actually, there's more going on in this particular telling of the story, because if anyone's heard the longer version in the Gospel of Luke, there's talk about a census. So the census is when uh, Augustus would have been gathering all the people and counting everything up. Now, the census in this time is not like the census of our day. It's not to figure out how to resource people. It's to figure out how many resources you had so that you could extract more. It was about, it was about raising the imperial tax. It was about extracting as much as possible from what you had. So you had to count everything you had so that you could claim it, claim the domination of your empire, and ask for more from your subjects. 
So the census was actually a really controversial and unwelcome time. The, the poor folks in the region would have been really upset about the census. And in fact, there were, as, as we mentioned, there were many rebellions throughout Pax Romana. One of the rebellions was in response to the call of a census, that they had called a census and there was rioting. So this was a really politically um, tense time. And so while, while the emperor is just gathering up his belongings and telling them to go to various cities like objects instead of people to be counted among his wealth, these low-level third-shift young workers are in the field. And all of a sudden, there is light. There is light and there is a terrifying figure and this terrifying figure starts to speak to them, first saying, do not be afraid. This sense that, like, I have come for you, not to, to disappear you into the night, not to dominate you, but I've come for you. Do not be afraid. And in fact says, I have good news of great joy, royal proclamation. This is political Whatever this angel of God is about to say is going to be in direct opposition to the royal decrees of Caesar. I have good news of great joy. And he goes on, for all the people. Now, for all the people might not sound like much to us, but to the author of Luke, the phrase, the people, doesn't mean the rulers. It means the people. It means the lowly, it means the underclass, it means the peasants. The people are described throughout the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which are written by the same author. The people are described in contrast to the religious authorities and to the rulers of their day. So here comes this imperial decree, but it's a different kind of decree. It's a different kind of political power. This is a different kind of king making a very different kind of announcement for a different audience. Coming to the lowly in their crappy job in the middle of the night saying, you are the most important people to hear. I have good news for the people. And good news for the people probably means bad news for the king. So now we've got this, this good news, this rolling out using all of this imperial language that stands in contrast to the empire that dominates them, that says this is a different kind of empire, a different kind of kingdom. King here means something utterly different. I'll tell you what it means. It means savior. It means Messiah. And it means Lord. This is the only time we see all three of those terms all together, and they're all deeply and powerfully charged. So Savior, Savior is again that call back, that Greek word soter, that was used to describe Augustus and other authorities of the day. Antiochus E. Soter was, the ruler, was a ruler of Syria. Ptolemy Soter, a ruler of Egypt. So these were, again, these highly politicized terms, the savior of the people. Except that in the language of Jesus and the language of our gospels, our good news, the good news for the people, salvation means something altogether different. Elsewhere, salvation is used to describe healing. 
In the book of Acts, one of the apostles heals a person physically and is asked, how did you do that? And his answer is that all can find salvation through the name of Jesus Christ. So salvation means healing. It means wholeness. It doesn't mean domination. It doesn't mean an end to war, an end to conflict by way of domination and oppression and and the structure of empire. It means healing that begins in our bodies and transforms us and transforms the world around us. Our Savior is a different kind of Savior. But our Savior is coming to challenge the so-called Savior's of the world. That reference back to King David in the city of David, that's a reference to the lineage of the kings of Israel. This is political. There is no getting around it. This is coming from a long line of a different kind of rule. But this is going to be different than even all those who came before. It's going to be the fulfillment. Because Messiah, in Greek, the Christ, means the anointed one, one who has been given divine authority, victory over enemies. And in this case, the enemies have already been cast. The enemies are the power of the world as it is known. This Messiah is coming to bring an end to kings as we know it, this fulfillment of this line. And finally, Lord which is the word used throughout the Hebrew scriptures in place of the unpronounceable name of the Most High God. God is coming to unseat rulers, to upend empire, to rule in an entirely different kind of way. And it's going to be bad news for Caesar, but it's amazing news for the people, for the shepherds. And as the shepherds are receiving this news, the first hearers of this proclamation that liberation is coming, that a different kind of peace is here, that the Pax Romana is a lie, now the sky is full of angels singing praises to God, praising God as the true, the true leader of our people. Nothing on earth that claims the power of God can compete And so the sky is full of these angels, and these angels say not only glory to God, but peace on earth, a different peace, a true peace. So this story has very many implications for us, but only if we are willing to examine our context with the same rigor with which we just examined theirs. What is the Pax Romana of our day? What is the thing that offers peace and an end to conflict? What is the power that says everything will be fine if you only let me control and dominate? There are many. There are many threads of false peace in our culture. But one that we are called to confront and one that I had the honor of confronting with some others on Friday, is capitalism. And the capitalism that dominates and extracts our natural world, pulling it apart piece by piece with not a care that there may be nothing left. In our day, consumption, 
promises peace. Power through money and accumulation. The never-ending expansiveness of capital and capitalism. The competition of resources that pit self against self. That acts as though the world is consumable. And that only if we could just consume enough and build enough and hoard enough, we would be safe. We would find peace. This is a kind of Pax Romana. This is a false peace. And it has provided us with resources, technology, advancements. There is a kind of peace. There are still wars. But what happens to rebellions? What happens to those communities who don't participate well in capitalism? And what about, just like the Pax Romana, all of the people who suffer under its so-called peace? Capitalism and consumption and extraction depend on, on things to extract from. Workers, the poor, the earth, And so all of this wealth that we've accumulated that has promised us peace and prosperity, who has it gone to? Who has peace under Pax Romana? Caesar, the one who dominates. And who pays for that peace with their lives and their bodies? The people. So where is the good news for the people? What does peace look like under Pax Capitalism? What kind of peace would the angels declare to us at our third shift jobs in the middle of the night? On Friday, I had the honor of being in the streets with folks who were speaking a different kind of peace, making a different kind of declaration, shouting a different gospel. I believe the gospel of the Lord, the Messiah who brings healing, our Savior. There was a global climate strike on Friday where people around the world walked off of their jobs and out of schools and into the streets to proclaim a different good news, to bring good tidings to the people and to the earth, which was really bad news for the rulers and the banks. There were many actions happening on Friday. One of the walkouts happened at 10.30 in the morning, and I know some of our folks were there. And so in the streets of Milwaukee, people walked out of their routines and into the streets to proclaim good news to the people and the earth, a disruption to the Pax Capitalisma. And so I had the honor, I was asked to be with another action, a dozen people going inside the Wells Fargo bank to sit in and risk arrest arrest, demanding a freezing of loans associated with fossil fuel extraction and profiting off of the extraction of the earth. I'll show you some pictures. So here we have some of the protesters There's about a little fewer than half of them. And they're sitting in and they're chanting. They're chanting and they're singing. They're humming and they're praying. They're declaring peace. They're crying out for it. 
One of the protesters routinely switched between various signals and symbols of peace in her hand gestures. And all of them were in this prayerful stance. They were declaring peace. But the peace of the people and the good news for the people is bad news for the empire. And so the empire has to come down hard on it and say, we don't have time for this. This is not okay. This is disruptive. And in fact, they say, you're causing a conflict. You're causing problems. When in fact, the arrestees are exposing problems. They are exposing the, the, the lack of peace. But what we hear from those in power and those sent by those in power, MPD, is you're disrupting the peace of this place. We have a peace already. It's the peace of capitalism. This bank is very peaceful. But the bank, and the bank, what, you know, it's, it's quiet, it's calm, there's Muzak in the background, it's got beautiful vaulted ceilings, it was covered in Christmas trees, beautiful twinkling lights. Because they really want that first interpretation of the shepherds at night. Oh, peace on earth. But that peace is a false peace. And when it is confronted with the truth of its violence, it responds with violence and control and domination. And that's why we were not there very long before the police came. <laughs> and as we were there praying and chanting and shouting and speaking truth and telling the stories of the violence of this false peace, we heard some noises around us. And I went to the windows to investigate. And I saw beyond these Christmas trees and all of these trappings of American Christianity, I saw the people of God swelling outside. Do you see them? And they were outside and they were shouting and they were chanting and they were bringing their truth. The multitude had arrived. And there was, there was a, like a pounding and someone near me said, is that, are they pounding on the windows? What is happening? There was this beat that was building. And we looked, and there was a drum line. <laughs> because in Milwaukee, we may not do the horns of the angels, but we can do a drum line. And so the drum line is beating, and the people are shouting, and the multitude is there. The multitude proclaiming a new kind of peace, a different kind of peace. A powerful peace that upends systems and banks and false promises of the peace of this empire. This was the angelic host in that moment. Many of them students who had walked out of Milwaukee public schools. Who were there to speak the true peace of God. To proclaim the good news in the face of the lies that they had been told a different kind of peace. And I'd like you to listen to what that peace sounded like on Friday. Can we get that a little louder? These are the trumpets 
of our holy declaration. Let's keep going. We've got pictures, folks on the streets, challenging the empire and offering a different kind of vision. And my favorite, my favorite moment of the multitude, the multitude of the heavenly host as represented by Milwaukee public school high school students, praising God and saying, we are unstoppable. Another world is possible. I believe them. Do you? They are unstoppable. Another world is possible. Another peace is possible. Not the lies of empire or capital, but the peace which is good news to all the people. The peace of God which comes to us from the earth and from the ground and from the sidelines. The peace of God that those high schoolers have that no one in Wells Fargo can imagine. The true peace. Those arrestees in there, they sat for hours being threatened. Then they were zip-tied and hauled off in vans. Then they were jailed. Many of them got home well after midnight with sores on their wrists and their bodies aching from being constrained. Can you imagine the peace that it takes to be present to the world in that way? Those protesters were embodying a peace, a different kind of peace. In the face of the anxiety of empire, which is so easily threatened, so quick, to quash, so quick to violence and suppression. But the peace that allows those protesters to be arrested calmly and deliberately is the same peace that pours out of the mouths and hands of those students singing and chanting and drumming. It is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It is the peace of God that knows what's up. It is the peace of God that comes when called. It is the peace of God that imagines a different kind of order, that has room for all, that values all. It's the peace of God that shows up. It is the peace that we long for, even if we don't know it. It's the peace that we're truly longing for, that they are trying to placate when they say, buy more things. Invest more, work harder. We'll protect you if you only consume enough. That is a false peace. That lie is meant to quell our desire for true peace, the presence of God, the connection to community, the fullness of life, which we have in one another and in the divine. Do not let them sell you a false peace. Pax Romana is a lie. Do not let them sell you a false peace and tear apart our creation. In the meantime, the declaration of the multitude is that peace has arrived on earth and that peace is the Lord. 
the God whose name is unspeakable, the God who heals. And that healing is the kind of peace we long for. And that we find that not from empire or from Caesar or from the decrees of those political forces. We find that peace in a manger with the people, among the people. That God comes to us, not through structures of power and domination, but from the ground, from the lowly, in communities of struggle. The peace of the Lord is yours. Don't let anyone lie to you about that. And so how do we find this peace? Well, we have to turn away from Caesar and turn toward the manger and find that vulnerable child wrapped, held in the midst of the smelly messiness that is birth and that is poverty. But the peace is actually there. And it came down from the heavens for you in order that you might have true peace, which is hope, which is resistance, which is a different kind of power and presence and aliveness. Will you pray with me? God of peace, Transform in our hearts and minds our understanding of what peace really is. Awaken us to your peace, the peace of connection, of love, of resistance. God, another world is possible. You are unstoppable. Let us be a part of your force for peace, this resistance of peace this connection of peace. Wake us up, Lord. Ground us in your holy peace and help us spread the good news to the people. Amen.